Matthew 22, 34 to 40, says this. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commands. Christianity has a love problem. No, not a sex problem, but it's related. No, not a marriage problem, but it's impacted. And no, not a theology of love problem. Scripture spells out very clearly what Christian love should look like. And yet, Christianity has a love problem. And nowhere is this more evident than in American evangelicalism. Over the last couple of years, it's come out that the most popular apologist engaged in habitual abuses of sex and power. The largest evangelical college is embroiled in sex and extortion scandals and the mishandling of abuse allegations. The largest evangelical denomination has been rocked by hundreds of reports of clergy sex abuse. One of the largest evangelical camps is facing numerous reports of predatory behavior and child sex abuse. Several of the nation's largest megachurches have had credible reports against them of abuses of sex, power, and money. White evangelicals overwhelmingly supported one of the most abusive, immoral, and narcissistic presidents in modern history. And white evangelicals have consistently voted in favor of measures that would continue to marginalize and disempower communities of color. Christianity has a love problem. And if Christianity has a love problem, that means Christians have a love problem. But I suspect I don't need, you don't need me to tell you that. You don't have to look far on the internet, in churches, in homes, probably even in your own heart, to find Christians doing and saying incredibly unloving things. So how is this possible in a religion whose primary command is to love God and love others? Well, this is a complex question, and, but I'm going to tell you one of the reasons. It's a problem of Christians, you and me, of Christians not being radically transformed by Christ. In the church, that's a discipleship problem. 
And one of the best remedies we've seen, that Papua and I have seen, to this discipleship problem is something called emotionally healthy discipleship. Now, if you were were with us pre-pandemic, you might recognize that. We did a whole class, and you might have participated. And there are parts of your life that might have already even been changed since that class. But emotionally healthy discipleship is the single best solution that we have seen to this problem, the disconnect of love. And so here's a little video explaining it and talking a little bit more about what emotionally healthy discipleship is all about. The church today is in deep trouble, really deep trouble. Studies have been done over the last eight to ten years that people are not experiencing transformation in our churches. In fact, only 1% of church leaders say that the church is doing very well at discipling new and young believers. In fact, participation in discipleship activities in churches is as low as 20%. It's that weak. And the broader culture is changing so rapidly in terms of opposition to the values of Scripture that we have got a crisis that we're in and that we're headed for with our next generation. Divorce rates are just as high among Christians as among other groups. In fact, the state of marriages among Christians is the same as those who don't know Christ. Only one of four Christians in the United States actually study the Bible to find God's will for their lives. Most Christians today are in a spiritual coma. In fact, they're stuck at a wall in their relationship with Christ, and they don't even know it. The two most significant reasons this is, is one, people are very busy. They are, they are really busy. And secondly is they don't have a commitment to actually get discipled. And so a new program or a quick fix is not going to turn around this reality. I experienced the magnitude of this problem 29 years ago when I planted New Life Fellowship Church in Queens, New York City, realizing that if we were going to penetrate this difficult urban environment, people would need to be deeply changed by Christ. This led me on a journey that we now call Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, or EHS. It is one powerful answer to this enormous challenge before us. And really, there's two primary components of EHS. One is that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable, that it's not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And then secondly is that we must slow down to cultivate our being with Jesus. And that slowing down is indispensable in our world today. These two things together, emotional health and a slowed down relationship to be with Jesus, are revolutionary and transformational. Now, most churches do discipleship in what I call the traditional way. People meet Jesus, they attend church, they get connected, they serve, they give, and then they make a a bit of an impact in the world. But I'm about transformational discipleship. That is that people meet Jesus, they attend church, but then they do what we call deep beneath the surface or deep beneath the iceberg transformation in their lives, and then the impact in the world is much larger and more sustainable long-term. Now, over these decades, we have developed something that we call the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Course, or the EHS course. It's an eight-week course that lays a foundation for this deep beneath the surface change that we're calling people to in Christ. It gets deep beneath the iceberg and introduces people to a paradigm that can sustain them long-term in following Christ. It touches themes like journeying through the wall, 
knowing yourself that you might know God, enlarging your soul through grief and loss, discovering the rhythms of what we call daily offices and Sabbaths and and, uh, cultivating a life where Jesus is at the center. And so it introduces some life-changing concepts as foundations out of which the church can build a long-term discipleship in people's lives. And this course is not meant to be just done once or even in small groups at this point. It's a centralized, high-quality course with a small group experience at tables. I'm not saying it's the only way to disciple people, but it is one proven way that has enabled tens of thousands of people to break through in their walk with Christ. I want to invite you to do the EHS course in your church. Now, this is not for the faint of heart. We're talking about a radical way of doing church. That is calling people to discipleship to Jesus. Let it transform not only yourself and your leadership, but transform your people and become the foundation for every participant in your church of what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. So I want to challenge you to lead your people through this eight-week course, and you will find that God will meet you, and God will meet your church in ways that you never dreamed, and we'll build a church that will impact the world, and not just in our generation, but for the generations that will follow. So over the next six weeks, we're going to do the companion course to emotionally healthy spirituality that we did a few years back. This one's called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. And in a few minutes, you're going to learn more about that specific course, or I mean, the, the specific topics that we're going to be talking about. But the ideas that we're going to talk about over the next six weeks are all based off a common single principle. And that is, it is impossible to be spiritually mature or relationally mature while remaining emotionally immature. It doesn't matter how long you've been going to church. It doesn't matter how much Bible you know. It doesn't even matter if you pray. It's impossible to be spiritually mature or relationally mature while remaining emotionally immature. So what does that look like? What what does that look like? Well, so here are 10 signs of emotionally unhealthy people. First, you're overly critical or judgmental of others' behaviors, lifestyle, or spiritual walk. You ignore conflicts. You avoid hard conversations. You need recognition from people for things that you do, like helping someone out or serving at church. You ignore difficult emotions like anger, sadness, fear, grief. You forget about God when you're not doing Christian stuff. Sunday morning, that's all about God, but then the rest of the week, you just kind of forget him and go about doing your stuff. Or you deny the ways that your family of origin has impacted you. Who you are today. How you live in relationships with others. Or you're very reactive. You get easily angered, frustrated, or you wanting to give up. Or maybe you're not able to say no, even when you want to or should. Or you're not growing in your faith. Year after year after year. You've been a 
Christian 28 years, and, but really you're just a one-year-old Christian 28 times. So did any of these resonate with you? Any of these kind of hit that spot? I bet they do. And I bet now even more than ever. Because we have been through a period of stress and anxiety and loss, unlike anything that most of us have experienced in our life. So I bet we're living in some of those 10 spots most of our time. You see, deep issues and a shallow faith are a dangerous way to go through life. Deep issues and a shallow faith are a dangerous way to go through life. And a lot of Christians, maybe even a lot of us, are going through life like that. And if that is you, you are guaranteed to wreck your relationships. This series will help you prevent that. Now, next up, before is going to come up and tell you a little bit about what this series is all about. What is Emotionally Healthy Relationships? Thank you, Greg. Let me make sure I'm on here. Um, I don't know about you, but when I read over Greg's sermon last night while I was preparing in my side of it, I was deeply convicted. I was like, okay, that's me. So... Let's take a moment just to pray and invite the Holy Spirit to be with us. Holy Spirit, we know that you live in us, and that is how we were even able to receive Jesus. We know that you want to work and transform us. We want to be deeply transformed in Jesus, but it's hard. We're scared. We know it's going to take a lot of work on our part to partner with you, even though you are doing the transforming. So, Spirit, would you just open our hearts right now to have ears to hear that we would not be defensive or scared, but that we would just open ourselves up to you. Thank you for loving us unconditionally and for empowering us in all that we do so that we can be more like Jesus. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so what comes to mind when you think about an emotionally healthy disciple? Uh, Greg read, read the list of 10 things that it looks like to be unhealthy. And by the way, that list is on your table in case you were feverishly writing it. Um, how does an emotionally healthy disciple behave? especially when they're not at church, when they're in their home with their family, or at work doing mundane things, or online where there's a lot of, well, there's anonymity, and you can say whatever. What does an emotionally healthy disciple look like? Well, Pete Scazzaro and his wife, Jerry, who wrote the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship series, um, this is how they define it. They say that an emotionally healthy disciple slows down to be with Jesus, goes beneath the surface of their life to be deeply transformed by Jesus, 
and offers their life as a gift to the world for Jesus. So, regardless of your gender, your personality, your age, your, the generation you grew up in, your race, ethnicity, or culture, and even your, your characteristics, Regardless of all of that, a healthy disciple is a follower of Jesus who spends time with Jesus, is transformed by Jesus, and is a gift or a blessing to others. These three hallmarks. So you and I might take some time and say, okay, if I want to take an honest look at myself, what kind of disciple am I right now? Ask yourself, how well and how often do I slow down to spend time with Jesus? How much have my thoughts, actions, and character changed as a result of following Jesus? And how much is my life a blessing to my family, my friends, and even total strangers? The love problem that Greg talked about earlier is not new to you and me, to our time, or to our place in the world. It is very much a human problem, one that originated with the very first human beings. So we're going to take some time to look at what happened to the first human beings and how the love problem came to be. If you have your Bibles, you can read with me, or we're going to read it. Um, on the screen as well. But it's Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis, and I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story, and then we'll read some of it together. Okay. So in Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, in the first chapter and the second chapter, tells the story of how God created the world, and then he created the first man and the first woman. They loved God by trusting God, and they obeyed God, and it says that they had deep friendship with God, where God would come down and walk with them and talk with them every day. That just sounds amazing. And they loved each other. Adam and Eve loved each other. They were partners in uh, taking care of the garden that God had made for them. They had no reservations or fears about being there for each other. They um, partnered wonderfully together. But this state of wholeness and union did not last long. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about how personal and relational brokenness came to be the human state. When Adam and Eve listened to Satan, who came to tempt them to disobey God, they took and ate the fruit from the tree that God had said to them, you can eat anything here, but don't eat from this tree. And they disobeyed him and did what they wanted to. They broke their relationship with God by disobeying him. And then they ruptured the relationship between each other as they turned against each other and they only thought about preserving themselves. Adam, who once was so overjoyed that God had given him this gift of Eve, his wife, now turns on her and blames her. And Eve, who had been unafraid 
and trusting of her husband now becomes defensive. And this is what the rupture relationship came to be like. So in Genesis 3, 7 through 13, we get a picture of what happened to them. We read, Then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Here we can see the ruptured relationship where they didn't trust each other anymore and they were scared of God and they found out they should be scared of each other because Adam just threw his wife under the bus and Eve didn't know what to do so she had to find someone else to blame. And that ruptured brokenness has been passed down from generation to generation. So that no matter when or where a person is born in the world, that person is born with and lives out the brokenness and the ruptured relationship. Now everyone longs for the Garden of Eden, being back where God created us to be, in perfect union and living in perfect love. But we all mess up in our relationships. We all have the love problem to some extent. But praise God that the story doesn't actually end there. The brokenness of humanity doesn't stay broken. God, in his infinite love for the humans he created, made a way to restore friendship with them and to restore love between the humans. He did this by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to live with us, to die for us, and to be raised from the dead to have victory. To believe in Jesus as your Savior means that you now have a relationship with God. That ruptured relationship has been restored. But it doesn't end there. To believe in Jesus also means that now you have relationship with the family of God with the people who belong to Jesus. And you might come from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of family uh, upbringing, but when you come to the family of Jesus, you belong to God now, and you have to learn to live as the family of God. And in the family of God, we do things differently than your family of origin or than the world does. So. Here's a graphic 
from the EHR, what we are teaching through the next six weeks is called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. And this is a course that Skizero and his wife wrote together, um, teaching us skills on what it looks like, the relationships in the new family of Jesus. What are these new relationship skills? And it's essentially a restoration. So the brokenness before Jesus came in the garden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, where there's defensiveness, there's low self-awareness, we are isolated from each other, we are quick to blame, we're reactive to things that happen, we're fearful of each other, we're self-absorbed and selfish, we're addicted to things to numb our fears and anxieties, and we're dishonest because we're afraid of others. But Jesus, in his transformation work in us, restores us to wholeness, to Genesis 1 and 2, where there was perfect union and genuine love. In this wholeness, we are approachable. We have high self-awareness. We're connected. We're quick to take responsibility. We are non-reactive. We're calm and non-reactive. We're courageous. We are self-giving. We are free. And we are honest. And that's what it looks like to be in the family of God. The, the course comes in a book. So I would encourage you, if you want to, to actually order the book. We ordered it from Amazon and got it the very next day. So our sermons series is going to come from exercises in the book as well as information in here. So I would invite you to uh, order the book. It's called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. Um, now, what we're doing is that we're taking the principles from, that we learned in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality from a couple years ago, and we are applying it with scripture, uh, and with practical skills so that you can use these skills in your everyday life. Um, the HR course, the Emotionally Healthy Relationship course, has eight skills for relationship building, but we're going to only do six of them. So over the next six weeks, we're going to look at um, how to take your community temperature. And next week, Pastor Kong will, will walk you through what it looks like to take your community temperature. We're going to learn how to stop mind reading and to learn how to clarify our expectations. Um, we're going to explore the iceberg, this idea that there's so much more underneath the waterline than we show to people or we even understand about ourselves. We're going to learn how to listen incarnationally we're going to climb the ladder of integrity, and we're going to learn how to fight cleanly. So these are the six uh, skills that you're going to learn. So I encourage you to come back and join us in this. As a marriage and family therapist, I am so excited for our church to be addressing core relationships, killers, and learning practical skills to bring depth and strength and life to our relationships.